for months a day, and I have to shorten this quite a bit. Um, I just want to call attention to the very first line of the very first announcement, which says, construction on the chalet has started. And says there's quite a bit of heavy work going on. So that's the reason that I departed from the usual lectionary reading from today. And you've got Nehemiah with, I inflicted all those unpronounceable names on Beth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> before I came up. But we'll, we, you know, Hashpadana, that's a real mouthful. But we'll, we'll hope that the, um, the outcome justifies that. So uh, the book of Nehemiah is a, a book about a successful building project. And so it's sort of a happy coincidence that I'm teaching this Sunday night Bible study on Nehemiah, and we are just at this point in our congregational history. Uh, so I thought this would be a good text for us to um, reflect on. But this, this project in Nehemiah was more than, than rebuilding. It involved renewing. And I think what we have in chapter 8 in the text we write is something unexpected that I don't think either Nehemiah or Ezra anticipated. I think something else began to take shape within this chapter as we begin to look at it. But to try to make the transition from ancient to contemporary, here is your translation guide. Okay, the chalet equals the rebuilt wall of Jerusalem. John Lauer and Gary Morrow equal Nehemiah. <laughs> One would be the left side and the other the right side of Nehemiah. Okay, Pastor Ben is uh, Ezra the scribe, trained in the law of Moses. Uh, you are all the wall builders. Okay, so lift up your right hand, everybody. Done. Okay, that's your shovel. Lift up your left hand. Keep the right hand up against the weapon. Oh, you're all charismatic now. <laughs> uh, charismatic wall <laughs> So no, that's what it says. They, they had shovel in one hand, they had weapon in the other. Now, if I really wanted to take the analogy further, I would say that the Chesterfield officials would be, let's see. Um, <laughs> well, we don't want to go there, right? Because I think, uh, I think uh, Mike did hook up the recording here, so we, we could, you know, you never know in this era of YouTube and the Internet where things end up. So, um, but no, we won't quite go, go that far. And, and what am I? I guess because I taught... Ben, many years ago, I'm like the, the Babylonian rabbi, way in the background. So, well, just a few thoughts before we, we plunge into the text on building and rebuilding. Um, three words that come to mind, complicated, controversial, and consuming. You know, I know this from my own family experience. I reflected back um, over my family history in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. Some member of my family was involved in some kind of rebuilding building or rebuilding project. We, in the 1970s, when I was very, very, very little guy, um, we were uh, building a house in Omaha, Nebraska, and what we didn't know was that the person who owned the whole development next to ours, because ours, our property abutted this development, made our land, which was at the low point, the, um, the uh, point of drainage for the entire development that we did. And this was never communicated to us, and then there was a huge rainstorm, and we had a collapsed foundation. Well, we moved to the top of the mountain after that. So the top, the highest point in West Omaha to avoid that particular uh, episode. And then um, there was a, a, some land redevelopment deal in St. Helena in the Napa Valley that my father was involved with. They had to name the, the street through the middle. It was called Sarah's Way, which was my daughter's name. 
a 25-year-old daughter, so I heard it saying, and she told her friends that, she said, you know, there's a street named after me, you know, Sarah's wife said, oh, well, you mean it just happens to be Sarah, she, says, she said, no, no, she said, I'm the Sarah, I'm the one, I said, oh, sure, yeah, they didn't believe her, you know, so she got out Matt Quest to try to, you know, show this is actually it. Uh, my sister and her fiance in Mill Valley, California, uh, wanted to expand their deck on their house, and, um, the neighbor didn't like what they were doing, so they say good fences make good neighbors, but the neighbor threw a, a, a dead rat over oh. while they were barbecuing in the back just to express the disapproval. And then there was someone who lived near them who was a big-time television producer, and he kind of made it his personal crusade to shut down this project. He said that by extending the deck like another a foot beyond that, they would completely destroy oh his view looking out, you know, down from the top of this mountain. And so he went around with... Um, with a staple gun and these posters and went through all the telephone poles and then he, you know, put in pictures with all this disinformation and so they had to struggle with the city council and um, it was, he was on a one-man crusade to try to stop the building. So, you know, if we think of the ancient and the modern context, things haven't really changed that much. <laughs> Scholars call it the politics of space. The people want to be able to dictate what has, happens or doesn't happen within a particular space or territory that they, they seek to control. If you look at the book of Ezra, then Ezra actually got stopped because he did not have a building permit, that actually, from the, from the king. And then they found that there was something in the archives that other officials had overlooked. This is for real. This is a, you can go check that out in the book in Ezra. I think it's chapters 4 and 5. Um, but Nehemiah comes into the narrative um, as a remarkable character. He's living the good life in Susa. He's a high court official, and yet he leaves that behind. Uh, to go and aid in this local building project, like the banking executive in New York who goes to Arkansas for the thankless task of you know, helping the project to move forward. Um, Nehemiah needs uh, some certain supplies. He asks for wood to rebuild the city gates, but I think it's interesting he never asks for stone. There's no request for stone in the second chapter of Nehemiah. Why? Because the stone was already there. The broken stones were lying on the ground. They'd been there for decades. And also the muscle power was already there, but the people lacked the vision, and they lacked the will to lift up the stones and begin to put them into place. So that's really what Nehemiah's injection in the situation is. is his new vision, a new impetus, uh, and he leads the people that in the successful building project, these are the earlier chapters of Nehemiah from chapters 2 through chapter 6, in only 52 days, so you can start counting now for our project. But tell them it needs to be 52 days if it's going to be biblical. Um, maybe tell one of the con you know one of the workmen who shows up that, and then they'll, then we'll really know that we're fanatics, right? Just kidding. Uh, but in those 52 days, this short, intense building project, there's no references to any worship services. Chapter eight, this text we read, this is the first worship service that takes place um, after in in, in in the book of uh, Nehemiah. And um, it's not clear, I think, whether um, this was Nehemiah's plan from the beginning to have the service of worship, or if this is something that Ezra was pushing for, because Ezra suddenly appears kind of out of nowhere in this, uh, this chapter. There are six references to Ezra, and so he's suddenly important. Uh, so this, so let's, let's talk about the text, and you can open up your bulletin. I'll make a few references here. So the first gathering for worship. Uh, the building program has created a space for worship. 
And then what happens in chapter 8 is there a spontaneous emotion that begins to develop in the hearts of the people with their prolonged exposure to God's word. Chapter 9, which comes after the chapter we read, is a long liturgical prayer of repentance, the people's repentance after hearing God's word. Yes, the ancient Judeans were Anglicans, because <laughs> they not only had emotions, but they both they prayed liturgically. It's sort of half serious on this. It's you know, if the emotion were enough, there's a lot of emotion in this chapter, right? But there is a liturgical prayer, there's a written prayer, which people give. And then there is, then you could also say they were not only Anglican, they were Puritan, because they had a covenant in chapter 10, where they made a formal written agreement indicating their recommitment on a couple of important matters to, re, to, to honor the Sabbath day, and then maybe even more importantly, not to intermarry with the Gentiles. Those are two areas of, of disobedience to God. Um, so uh, throughout this chapter 8, one of the things that you'll notice if you look at this is a tremendous emphasis on the written word of God. There are all these references to reading and then to understanding. It says... Uh, that it was for everyone, the reading was for all who could listen with understanding, in verse 2. So this is really for everyone who was of age where they could understand. For the, verse 3, it talks about those who could understand. It says the people were attentive, verse 3. Verse 8 says that they were interpreting or translating to get the sense so that they understood the reading. This is really the beginning of what we have, something like a synagogue service. Because there's no animal sacrifice in this chapter. This is not the, the temple worship that existed before. This is something new. And it's also taking place, it says, at the water gate, verse 1. It's a secular space. They didn't, interestingly, they didn't go back to the side of the temple, because we know that they had already laid the foundation. They were still building on it. They could have had a service there. They went into a secular space. They, it says they put up a wooden podium. And then there was this prolonged reading of scripture. How long was it? Seven days. It lasted several days, but even in one day, in verse, it says, in verse 3, it says about, I would estimate about six hours, because it said from early in the day till midday, so that would be roughly from about 6 a.m. to noon. Um, But the people were so hungry for the word of God, as they began to hear it read at great length, that they came back the next day, verse 13, it says, so they might gain more insight into the Word of God. This is, the Bible had become a forgotten book to the people of Israel, and the process was already starting to happen, if you look in the book of Jeremiah, because there were false prophets in those days, and it talked about how the lying pen of the scribes had taken the Word of God and made it into a lie. And so there were a lot of false teachings out there, and um, people didn't really know the Word of God. And then during the time of exile, the likelihood is that the average Israelite would not have had much access to the Word of God, living in a foreign land. Um, so, uh, but what God does, first of all, is raise up Ezra and a group of scribes around him who become learned in God's Word. And then, this chapter 8 is really the breakthrough moment, when for the first time, I think, Ezra had the opportunity to expose people to God's Word, at, at, in depth, in length, over these hours, and again, it wasn't just reading scripture, you were reading, and then there would be interpretation. There would be sermonizing or a homily connected with that reading and further interpretation. And then as the reading and the interpretation of God's word went on over time, people became more and more aware of their sin and their transgression to the point that they were weeping 
See, this wasn't the idea. If you look uh, uh, just uh, a few verses later, it says that um, in verse 9, it says the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And then Nehemiah and Ezra say to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And they tell him, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This was a feast day. This was not to be a fast day. This was to be a day of celebration, not a day of mourning. Imagine on Thanksgiving, if you had announced to the people that you had your Thanksgiving meal with, I'm fasting today. <laughs> um, I will not have any of your turkey or dressing. Save it for tomorrow. <laughs> Wouldn't have gone over very well, right? Particularly for those who put all the hours in preparation. In my in my family growing up, the trouble was always that, that the men would pull away and watch football rather than sitting at the table with the uh, you know. The, so anyway, you got you got to respect the rules of the feast, right? Just you got to respect the rules of the fast. Right? And so, in an unexpected way. The Holy Spirit began to work. The Spirit's not mentioned here, but very strongly implied. Beginning working with the Word of God, applying it to the hearts of the people. They become uh, aware of their sin. And the results were really quite spectacular, quite unexpected. Like most true revivals in history, they're not expected. They're not anticipated. You read about the day of Pentecost, it says, suddenly from heaven. God suddenly showed up. This is true of revivals in American history. We won't get into that or spend much longer time on that. But Jonathan Edwards wrote this work called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. He used the word surprising in the title and a number of times in the text as well. And I think this was a surprising work that happened on this day. They were throwing a party for themselves, a time of celebration, and it turned into something else. Uh, God did uh, the unexpected at this time. Um, so what kind of repentance was it? Well, we mentioned already, this becomes clear in chapter 10, intermarriage with the Gentiles and the dishonoring of the Sabbath day. This was the great downfall of the Israelites as they had blended with the nation they had learned idolatrous ways. And so intermarriage was a, a particularly sensitive issue because it was almost impossible for a Jew really to be faithful to God's word while they were li living with him and cohabiting and married with a, an idolater. And so what happened is that this time of rededication of the wall became really a rededication of the people themselves to God. And the chapter ends not with mourning, but with rejoicing. Because the festival of booths, which Ezra, in his wisdom, had, had time to coincide with this, this gathering, was a period where the people, they went all went camping together, right? So you set up booths, sleepy, sleepy shows in commemoration of the wandering of Israel through the world. So that became a time of rejoicing because the people became obedient to God, they followed the law of God, and the, the phrase uh, comes up again and again. In his, as it was written, as it was written, the people suddenly are becoming attentive to what is written in the Word of God and seeking to conform their life to God's work. So let's turn to application. What do we learn from this passage, and what should we do? Well, I think there are a number of things we learn. We learn that structures matter, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, matters more than structures. The people needed a safe and secure place in which to live and worship. But it should be obvious that the bricks and the stone were not the source of the revival that took place here. The revival happened as people encountered God's Word, they were attentive to it, and they began to respond. 
And I think this is a, is a, is a message for, for our Anglican Church of the Resurrection, that it's a mistake to allow the building, the physical structure, budgets, committees, programs, to dictate the nature of our ministry. Uh, it's a constant temptation to do that. So the structure matters, but the structure exists for a purpose, that the Word of God would go forth and be manifested in a powerful way. So we have, uh, related to that, we could say there's Nehemiah work and there's Ezra work. And Nehemiah played an essential role, but in this chapter he takes a back seat to Ezra. Uh, in fact, if, if you notice those, the long list of names of 14 people up front with Ezra in the worship service, Nehemiah is not named among them. So, you know, there's a lot of like uh, prayer breakfast, you know, where you have the governor or the mayor seated up front with the ministers. This, Nehemiah is, is somewhere else. So there was a clear distinction between the civil authority and the, and the spiritual authority. And uh, so Nehemiah, I think, uh, deliberately absented himself because he wanted Ezra to have a free hand to do the work of, of the ministry of God's word at this point. And I think the application for us would be to our Ezra, to, to Pastor Ben, because we want him to, to be free, to minister God's word, to apply it to our lives, and then also through us to, uh, to be a congregation of outreach. Advantage. So it's very much on, on Ben's heart, as I think we all are aware from hearing the sermons, that we would be a people that is not inwardly focused, but outwardly focused. So we need our Nehemiah work to serve our Ezra work. And we also learn from this, this passage that the Word of God is powerful. How do you show that a lion is powerful? You let it out of the cage. <laughs> and this is what Ezra did. He uncaged God's Word and it became powerfully effective. Now, we also have to say, though, the Word of God did not do its work instantaneously. There was a need for prolonged exposure. Six hours of reading on this particular day that proved to be the turning point in the spiritual history of uh, Israel after the return from exile. Um, so we might think about that ourselves. Are we, are we uh, as, as one preacher heard, uh, I heard, but are we, do we allow ourselves to marinate in God's word? You know? I love that verb. Marinate. That's what we should do. It's like the pickle in the, in the pickle juice, right? We should be soaking. Maybe I don't know. Some of you maybe marinate in the bathtub. I don't know. Ladies, you put your bath salts in and sit in there for five hours with candles burning and romance novel or, or soft music. But we want, to, we want to soak. We want to soak in God's word. We want to be able to absorb it. So let's ask ourselves these questions now. Has our own heart, has my heart, has your heart been tenderized by prolonged exposure to God's Word? That's what was happening in this passage. Their hearts were deeply affected, not instantly, but over a period of time as they began to expose themselves to God's Word. I, I read recently about an English professor at a university who was, a, who was an atheist. And she was assigned the Bible as literature. And she began to read it. And the process took about two to three years. She read through the entire Bible four or five times. Every time she read it, she found her attitude beginning to change over time. So she experienced something like this in her own life and ended up as a Christian believer in that process. So what about that prolonged exposure? And then are we becoming aware of what these Israelites became aware of? God's goodness? and mercy and our unworthiness. You read the next chapter, chapter 9, it's all on this great theme of how the people had been unfaithful, 
to God, and yet God again and again had been faithful. And I think that we come to a point when we've really encountered God's word, when we can write our own history, like the history of Israel. I did this, I went astray, but God, you came looking for me. You brought me back. And we can tell our own story. As as St. Augustine did in his great book, The Confession, he said, why am I talking about my sins? He said, not because I love them, but because I love you, O Lord. And so when Augustine wrote his confessions, he did something like this, his own account. He might even actually literally do that sometimes. Actually literally write down the story of the ways in which God has shown his faithfulness. And then also as we're talking about writing, what about this idea of a covenant renewal? And I mean this rather literally. I'm not trying to lay down any law on us, but when the Israelites came to rededicate the wall, they ultimately came to a written expression of what their commitment was before God. Might God be leading Anglican Church of the Resurrection to do something like that? To express, even in a written way, that we could all, so to speak, sign on to what it is we're committing ourselves to as we come into the building. Because once again, as I said, the bricks, the mortar, they are not going to change lives. The Word of God will change lives, and we will be used as God's instrument to change the lives of others as we submit to God. So let's just close in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that your, your the ancient text is so relevant for us today. And Father, our prayer is that as we bring to completion this building project in the coming weeks, that uh, we would be uh, a living temple to you, that we would be available to serve you, available first and foremost to listen to you through your word, and then to not to be hearers who delude themselves, but to be active doers of your word. And Father, may we be, as Pastor Ben is so often challenges, be a people for others, a people looking out to the community around us, the ways in which we can communicate your word and see lives transformed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.